Bada Kundala Kesa. Kundala Kesa means curly hair. As a laywoman, she had curly hair. And she was formerly a Jain ascetic. You may have heard of the Jains. In ancient times, a very well-known teacher, very, very strict on nonviolence. And in some ways, they were much more popular than the Buddha and the Buddha's teaching. Let's hear about Bada. In Rajagaha, the capital of the kingdom of Magadha, there lived a girl of good family named Bada. Her parents protected her very carefully because she had a passionate nature and they were afraid that she would be hurt due to her attraction to men. One day from her window, Bada saw a thief being led to the place of execution. He was the son of a Brahmin, but had a strong tendency towards stealing. She fell in love with him at first sight and convinced her father that she could not live without him. So he bribed the guards who let the condemned man escape. Soon after the wedding, the bridegroom became obsessed with the desire to get his wife's jewelry. He told her that he had made a vow that he would make an offering to a certain mountain deity if he could escape execution. Through this ruse, he managed to get Bada away from his home. He wanted to throw her down from a high cliff to gain possession of her valuable jewels. When they came to the cliff, he brusquely told her about his intention. Bada, in her distress, likewise resolved to a ruse that enabled her to give him a push so that it was he that enabled her to give him a push so that that it was he who fell to his death. Burdened by the enormity of her deed. She did not want to return to lay life. Sensual pleasures and possessions were no longer tempting for her. She became a wandering ascetic, first with the order of James, 
and as a special penance, her hair was torn out by the roots when she ordained. But it grew again, and it was very curly. Therefore, she was called curly hair. The teaching of the Jain sect did not satisfy her, so she became a solitary wanderer. For 50 years, she traveled through India. She wasn't traveling on highways. A solitary woman as well, traveling. So for 50 years, she traveled through India and visited many spiritual teachers, obtaining an excellent knowledge of religious scriptures and philosophies. She became one of the most famous debaters. When she entered a town, she would make a pile of sand and stick a rose apple branch into it and announce whoever would engage in discussion with her should trample upon the pile of sand. One day, she came to Sawati and put up her little monument. At that time, Sariputta, the disciple of the Buddha with the greatest power of analysis, was staying at the Jeta Grove. He heard of the arrival of Bada, and as a sign of his willingness for debate, he had several children go and trample on the pile of sand. Thereupon, Bada went to the Jeta Grove to Anattapindika's monastery, accompanied by a large number of people. She was sure of victory, since she had become so used to being the winner in all debates. She put a number of questions to Sariputta. He answered all of them until she found nothing more to ask. And then Sariputta asked her. Already the first question affected Bada profoundly. He asked her, What is the one? What is the one? Bada remained silent, unable to discern what the elder could have been inquiring about. Surely he did not mean God or Brahman or the infinite. She pondered, what was it? The answer should have been nutriment. Why? Because all beings are sustained by food. Food of the body, food of the mind. Although she was unable to find an answer and thereby lost the debate, she knew that here was someone who had found what she had been looking for during her pilgrimage of half a century. She chose Sariputta as her teacher, but he referred her to the Buddha, the Awakened One, who preached the Dhamma to her at Mount Vulture Peak. And at the end of his teaching, he recited the following verse. Though a thousand verses are made of meaningless lines, better the single meaningful line by hearing which one is at peace. Just as the wanderer Bahia was foremost amongst monks who attained arahantship faster than anyone else, Bhatta was foremost amongst nuns with the same quality. Both grasped the highest truth so quickly and so deeply that 
admittance to the order followed after their attainment of arahantship. They became fully enlightened even before they were ordained. The mind and emotions of both of them had long been trained and prepared, and so they could reach the highest attainment very quickly. Trained and prepared. Remember the train? Bada's verses have been handed down to us in the collection of the verses of the elder nuns. And this is how she summarized her life. I traveled before in a single cloth with shaven head covered in dust, thinking of faults in the faultless. While in the faulty, seeing no faults. When done was the day's abiding, I went to Mount Vulture Peak and saw the stainless Buddha, revered by the order of bhikkhus, and then before him with my hands in Anjali, like this. Humbly, I bowed down on my knees. Come, Bada, he said to me, and thus was I ordained. Debt-free, I traveled for fifty years in Anga, Magadha, Baji, in Kasi, in Kosala, living on the alms of the land. That lay supporter, wise man indeed, may many merits accrue to him, who gave a robe to Bada for free of all ties is she. That's from the Terigati. So Bhata, just by hearing one short verse from the Buddha, attained enlightenment. And better it is to hear one line of truth that gives us peace to, than to read a thousand books, philosophies, doctrines, to travel the world acquiring knowledge from various systems of training. If one can, through one meaningful teaching, realize the way to truth. This is what Bada discovered. Very brave was she, 50 years of wandering, here we are in our comfortable Dhamma Hall, having traveled maybe 50 miles, 200 miles to get here, not that far. And why do we come? Why do we make this pilgrimage? It's not the first time that you've traveled somewhere to hear teachings and to practice the Dhamma. But really, what we have to hear may not be from the Buddha himself, but if we can hear it from within our own hearts, within a mind that has been purified and cleared by polishing the moon and sweeping the clouds, then we will find peace. We will realize not only the truth within our own hearts, but we will realize the truth that every human being comes to. 
every human being has the potential to come to. Every human being is on this earth, in this realm, able to realize this truth. So what's stopping us? There's nobody trying to throw us off a mountain. We're not encumbered here with the sights, sounds, few sounds, smells, tastes, and touch gratifications of worldly pleasures. And we're not disturbed by uh, relatives, work obligations, colleagues, neighbors, nasty traffic jams. So what are the obstacles? No one is pushing us aside, speaking in loud tones, taking away our seats, stealing our few possessions, denying us food. We have everything we need to a level of restraint. What are the obstacles? What is preventing us from finding that peace within us? After sitting for two or three days, we see the untrained mind, how the untrained mind circles, how it keeps repeatedly presenting us with obstacles in the form of five hindrances. Greed, the hindrance of desire. Even though here all our basic needs are being satisfied, the mind is still able to think of other things or other ways that we could be here. If only I had that room instead of this room. If only I sat on this side of the hall instead of that side of the hall. If only there was a different meal schedule. All the ifs, all the the conditions that the mind will conjure up to distract us. Or we have memories that deter us from staying present, from being with the present moment, the most important moment. The only moment that we actually have is here and now, only this. We continually see faults in that which is faultless. And we see faultlessness in that which cannot satisfy us. We still believe our minds. If it isn't stories about the conditioned realm, it's stories about the future that doesn't exist, fantasies. Or it's memories of things that happened before, either over which we feel regret or longing. If I could be in Alaska, climbing up some beautiful snowy mountain, or if I could be sailing across the ocean with my best friends on a cruise, or on a triathlon. Somebody mentioned training for a triathlon. These are the things that the mind presents to us, and we desire them and long for them, and this becomes an obstacle. Even something so simple as the taste of food, wishing that the taste was slightly different than it was, or if there could be more or less. 
And it's not personal. We all do this. It's not there's something wrong with you or me, but it's this human condition. This is what the mind does. Human mind. And here we come, we sit down, we're all engaging in a process of watching the screen of the mind present its own version of greed, hatred, delusion. So greed is the principal cause. Greed is the principal obstruction. But on its heels, as soon as we long for something, we have the same capacity or inclination to run away from something else, like discomfort, like pain in the body. If the knee is hurting, if the back is paining, headache, we feel distracted and discomfited from staying with the present moment, from staying with the breath or the body, and focusing, training the mind, restraining the mind. Then, if it's not irritation, it may be something even more intense, which distracts us, like a memory of somebody speaking unkindly to us, or of a neighbor that we dislike, or of a duty that we have to fulfill, which we resent, or of having to live with people that we dislike, work with people that are not kind to us. So many types of incidents from our present life, past life, or what we expect might happen with conditions in our life, with situations. We feel anger, we feel bullied, or we feel averse, We want to escape from those situations. We want to rebel. We want them not to happen. And this obsesses the mind, perturbs the mind. A mind that is perturbed becomes clouded. We have to learn how to work with these obstacles just the way Dogen put it. Polish. Polish the moon and sweep the clouds. Polish the mind. Polishing away the obstacles that cloud our ability to stay present and see the phenomena arising in consciousness clearly, exactly as they are. In the seen, there's only the seen. In the heard, there's only that sound, pure sound. Not, oh yeah, that sound reminds me, and then there's a whole world of association. In the sense, there is only what we feel, sensation, painful, but going deeply into it, taking it to its raw elements. What kind of sensation is it? Not just naming it, labeling it as pain, pain, but knowing its fundamental nature, impermanent, suffering, and empty. Is the pain in the knee what we are? It's just a momentary phenomenon arising in a sharp or maybe burning, throbbing fashion that is uncomfortable, but we can endure it. If we learn to be patient with these sensations, then they become teachers for us. If we learn to face the angry moment and know it for what it is, just a burst 
of aversion, a hindrance, an obstruction, a cloud, we can sweep it away. We don't have to live with it, obsess with it, figure it out, prevent it from forever. Just in this moment, we sweep it away. We polish the mind so that it's bright like a moon. Then there are the lower forms of greed and anger, such as restlessness and anxiety. It's a kind of aversion. And lack of energy, exhaustion, is a form of indulging in the enervation of the body, not being energized enough to sit tall, sit straight, as if we're sitting at the edge of a mountain, as if some evil person is about to push us over and rob us of the opportunity to discover the jewels in our own mind. Our own mind has in it jewels that are brighter than the moon, brighter than the sun. And we don't have to wear any special spectacles to see these jewels as you would to see an eclipse. Next week, big phenomena, major eclipse of the sun. But we have in us a constant eclipse of the mind. And we want to see that. We want to see that jewel of the sun in the mind. We want to wipe away, polish away the obstructions to being able to see that brightness. So, what is the most subtle and insidious of all of these hindrances? Doubt. How many times does doubt make us decide that we can't sit anymore, that this situation isn't working, that this sitting isn't working, that there's something wrong with our practice, lacking in confidence, lacking in trust of the process, and giving up easily, giving rein to doubt, feeling faithless energy coming up and almost moving us out of our seat. Some people get very far along in the practice, There's actually a classic state that practitioners come to where they're getting very close to that jewel. They're actually approaching it. And then they start feeling inept, unable to continue. It's just Mara. It's just the demon of obstruction having a go at us, trying to topple us from sitting tall, sitting at the feet of the Buddha and following exactly his example, just enduring, persevering, developing the enlightenment factors instead of developing doubt. If we let doubt take hold of the mind, then the practice really doesn't have a chance. So we have to be extremely cognizant and aware of what is in the mind in the present moment and to recognize when there are obstacles and when they are absent. And when they're absent, we don't just sit there admiring the absence and feeling good about ourselves because 
the two main occupations that we have here is to sweep away the obstacles and to polish. These are two slightly different activities. The polishing of the moon is developing the factors of enlightenment. The sweeping the clouds is to sweep out the hindrances. And this, it works because the opposite of having the hindrances attack and plague the mind. It's a bit like a dog with fleas. What do you do when your pet has fleas? You put a little collar around it, give it a special bath. So this is what we have to do, bathe the mind in the enlightenment factors. Seven they are. What's the first one? Mindfulness. Mindfulness is a factor of enlightenment. Mindfulness is itself like a bright light. It's like the fanciest flashlight, the greatest beam of light that you can switch on in your mind. And you can switch it on just by having a powerful intention to be present, to be mindful, to be aware, to notice what is the state of the mind. It's very simple. It's not fancy equipment. It's not the sort of thing that when you climb a mountain, you have to get ropes and special boots, gear that you can breathe with at a high altitude, sleeping bags to protect you from the cold. This is just an intention, an aspiration to observe, to be present. To be alert, to pay attention, is the prerequisite for this practice. Without attention to the present moment, it's really difficult for us to develop the first factor of enlightenment, sati. If you have been a little bit lax in being mindful in between sittings, rev up that, just rev it up apply more intention, more effort to be mindful. Mindfulness doesn't happen by itself. We have to develop the intention to pay attention. Intention to pay attention. What's the second factor of enlightenment? The investigation of the mind. Investigating the qualities of the experience that we're having right now. Is it pleasant, unpleasant? Is it cool, is it hot? What is arising in experience? Evaluating, is it skillful or unskillful? Measuring whether this is a hindrance or something that will raise us closer to the goal, compel us towards the fulfillment of the path or deter us from our goal. So the investigation of Dhamma is extremely important. And we can also, in that, be aware of our own effort. And that's the third factor of enlightenment. It's not an ordinary effort. It's a persistent effort. It's a perseverance. So you've signed up for a course, and... There's 
so many days. But actually, you're signing up for a lifetime of investigation, a lifetime of mindfulness. Six days is just kind of studying the menu. You're not really having enough time to taste the full benefits of this path. We're just getting in the door. But we can achieve so much if we develop a persistence and a culminating effort that brings us all the way. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. It could take one lifetime, two lifetimes. (coughs) Whatever it takes, we just throw our shoes in, all our effort in, all our gear in that direction. I'm in it for good. It's a commitment. It's a renunciation. That quality, even though it's not named as a factor of enlightenment, is one of the ten paramis. We have to give up the things of the world to be able to receive the gifts of the path. As long as our energy is being used up pursuing worldly aims and pleasures, then we can't fully give ourselves to studying the mind, learning from our study, and applying what we learn to how we live, how we speak, how we even think. It's a mental training. You want to climb the mountain, but you're willing to admire it from the feet of the mountain. Then we never get up the mountain and we never know what the view is like. So the development of right view means getting some height, getting some leverage on this work. So effort can start with little baby steps, but we grow them till we bring the path to its combination. And in doing this, in bringing these factors of enlightenment together, we start to experience a joy and a happiness that is unworldly. It's different than pleasant tastes or good music or the delights of dining, partying, and all the rest of it. Even classical music. It's not a criticism, but there's a refinement. There is a subtlety of joy that is portable, that is in the heart, and that is a true support to free us from all our attachments. Not only that, if we had to die in this very moment, and we were able to know the joy of this enlightenment factor, this quality of joy and rapture in the heart, then we would be at peace with that. There is no worldly activity, no worldly support, not even all our relatives standing around us and encouraging us that would give us that kind of strength in a moment of death. We need the mind to experience that quality of deep, inner, pervasive happiness. And from that also comes a serenity, a calm, a coolness to the mind. And this also we need. If the mind is hot, 
if it's bouncing, if it's distracted, if it's weighted, burdened in any way, if it's on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion, then there's no clarity, there's no brightness, there's no coolness, there's no calm. Just like we talked about today, if you set out on a boat, on a lake, and the water is smooth and clear, you can see at great depths. And the same with the mind. If the mind is smooth, calm, and clear, we can see into the depths. And what we see is vital for our awakening. So then, that quality of serenity is so very important. And then, when the mind is cooled and calm, we develop the ability to see into the very deepest part of the mind. And this happens through single-pointedness of mind. Single-pointedness is also called concentration, but it doesn't mean a narrow mind. It means a still mind, a mind that is quiet, a mind that is not peering in any other direction but in. It's completely secluded within itself. People can be talking and you won't hear them. You won't be interested. Your interest has become so refined and well-directed that you are contained within yourself. And you feel complete permission you have the authority. It's as if you're seated on the mountain itself in the lotus posture with the whole world far away, out of reach. You are undisturbed, unperturbed, secluded, dispassionate, contented, detached. And then you have an inner stability, like a rock. You are the mountain rising up out of the earth, just like a mountain. And above you is that polished moon. The clouds are far away. The sky is clear all around you. From that samadhi, that stillness of mind, we develop equanimity. This is the fruit of all these factors of enlightenment. The final factor is the upeka, The mind is so equanimous no matter what condition we might be subjected to. We won't budge. The mind is immovable. It won't move from its posture. Notice when we sit how much we move around, adjust, twist, stretch. And as much as the body is moving in meditation, that's how much the mind is moving. Because our mental movement is a reflection of the desire in the mind. And it affects the body. We can't keep still. We we just got to get up, have to twist, have to change. Addicted to change, addicted to movement. But here we give up all addiction. Every kind of addiction. Addiction to thought. Thought is the inner movement of the mind. Even that, absolutely vanquished. The mind becomes equanimous, like a great ocean. 
And out of that mind is born the awakening factors, the awakening experience. Enlightenment can enter into such a mind. That's why these factors together as a package are called the factors, seven factors of awakening. These are for us to develop. This is what is meant by polishing the moon, sweeping the clouds, training the mind. Can you hear it? Gone. Let the trains go where they will. We stay here, in this one spot, at the shrine, at the feet of the Buddha, bowing, humble. We are so ignorant. If we could be free of our ignorance, we would not be hindered by hindrances, but we would be enlightened with these seven qualities. We would develop these qualities of enlightenment and we would be free of ignorance. May we all realize the path fully, not a little bit, not halfway, but fully in this very life. May our practice bring fruit and blessing for ourselves and for all beings everywhere. It's a moment-by-moment, patient, endurance practice. Even if you feel sometimes like an ox carrying a heavy load, the load gets lighter and lighter as we sweep and polish. It gets lighter and lighter as we emerge like a lotus blossom out of the swamp. You know lotus flowers? They are exquisite flowers and they grow in a swamp, muddy water. We live in a muddy world and we can be like those flowers. So we don't have to wander through India for 50 years or tear our hairs out by the roots. What torture. We don't have to engage in torture and ascetic practices. So let's have a mind of gratitude, of gratefulness. Grateful for whatever small bits that we get. 